Welcome to CCFA Perspectives on ReachMD, providing Crohn's and colitis updates, driving innovation in IBD research, education, and clinical support. This series is produced in collaboration with the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America. Hi, I'm Laura Wigate, the Vice President of Education Support and Advocacy at the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America. And we are at our annual conference in Orlando. This is CCFA Perspectives, Crohn's and Colitis Updates on ReachMD. Joining me today to discuss health maintenance in IBD is Dr. Gil Melmed, Director of Clinical Inflammatory Bowel Disease, Advanced IBD Fellowship Program, and Clinical Research in the Division of Gastroenterology at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center. Dr. Melman, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you, Laura. So we wanted to talk about health maintenance today. So I would like to start by asking you first, do you vaccinate your patients on azathioprine or anti-TNFs for zoster? Actually, this specific question is something that's evolved over the years. When we first started thinking about vaccinations in patients with IBD, we got a sense that there's a general rule out there. You don't give live vaccines to patients who are immunosuppressive therapy. And this has kind of been dogma in general internal medicine for a long time. And the reason is because there's a theoretical risk that if you've got a live vaccine and you're giving it to somebody who's on immunosuppressive therapies, that you could potentially acquire the infection due to being immunosuppressed. So really the recommendation was not to administer Zoster because Zoster is a live vaccine to individuals who are immunosuppressed. However, there's a couple things that have happened that I think are changing that dogma. One is that we've gotten a sense of how significant Zoster infection actually is in patients with inflammatory bowel disease. There was a study published in 2006 and a follow-up study in 2012 using very large databases in the UK and the United States that demonstrated the very significant increased risk of herpes zoster in patients with inflammatory bowel disease, and that risk is increased in those on immunosuppressive therapies. To the extent that if we think about the risk of herpes zoster in the general population, which goes up with age, and in the general population, it's recommended that we vaccinate individuals over the age of 60. This is across the board universal recommendation. Patients with IBD reach that risk that the average person might have at age 60, patients with IBD get to that risk at age 20 to 30. And so people with IBD do have a very significant increased risk of zoster. And as a result, we have to think about the possibility of just using common sense. What can we do to reduce the significant burden of this infection, which can be quite serious? Another thing that we've learned is that there have been accidental vaccinations of patients with IBD and other immune-mediated diseases who are on immunosuppressive therapies and those individuals have been studied and followed to see if truly the theoretical risk of acquiring the infection is real. There's one study published in 2012 where they actually looked at half a million Medicare beneficiaries and identified among them 630 people with inflammatory diseases on anti-TNF therapy that accidentally or maybe intentionally got the Zoster vaccine. And they followed those people out for six weeks because you'd think that after you get the vaccine, you should get zoster manifesting within that period of time. And there were zero cases of zoster after that accidental vaccination in these patients who were on anti-TNF therapy at the time. So then what they did was they took um, one step further and they examined a cohort of patients with inflammatory diseases on immunosuppressive therapy, on anti-TNF therapy, who did not receive the zoster vaccine in accordance to guidelines and in fact noted that those people did have an increased risk of zoster. So what we learned from this very important study is that 
the use of zoster in this population seems to be safe and that in fact it's safer to get the vaccine than not to get the vaccine because then you get protected from the infection. This hasn't yet been translated fully into guidelines. Guidelines from the CDC, which now go back to 2008, do allow for zoster vaccination in patients with inflammatory diseases who are currently being treated with steroids, less than doses of prednisone, 20 milligrams a day, azathioprine, 6-MP, or methotrexate at doses that we would use to treat inflammatory bowel disease. However, there's still a recommendation to be very cautious and not administer the zoster vaccine in patients who are on anti-TNF therapy. I think it's possible those guidelines will change as we accumulate more data and a sense of the safety of this vaccine and the importance of this vaccine to prevent this infection in this very susceptible population. That was a long answer. To get to the short answer and the summary of what I would do for patients on steroids, azathioprine, 6-MP, at conventional doses or lower, I would give them the zoster vaccine, provided they were at the age where we would typically give zoster vaccination. And uh, for patients on anti-TNF therapy, I might think about it on a case-by-case basis, but guidelines still are cautious in that regard. Thank you for that summary. That's really important information. What are your thoughts on postponing anti-TNF agents until all vaccines are completed? I think that in general, we have to treat the patient in front of us. And as much of a proponent as vaccinations as the general health community and for public health reasons, we need to be, and I certainly am, we have to treat the patient in front of us and think about the priorities of what's going on with them. If they are sick now, and they need to be treated with whatever they need to be treated with, and they should be. There's a theoretical reason to try to vaccinate individuals before they become immunosuppressed because their response to vaccines is more robust. They're going to develop potentially stronger immunity against that particular infection if they're not immunosuppressed. And there's quite a bit of data showing that if you're on combination therapy, especially with azathioprine and an anti-TNF, that your responses to vaccines may be blunted. However, you still get some response. And so my recommendation in the setting of a patient who needs to start therapy is to start therapy and worry about the vaccinations later. The one caveat to that will be with live vaccines because, again, once they're on immunosuppressive therapy, if there is a critical live vaccine that needs to be administered, that's going to be a tough situation because, again, of the theoretical risk of administering a live vaccine that could confer the infection. And so for specific live vaccines, if a patient has a high risk for those particular conditions, zoster being one, the chickenpox may be another, and a patient who has not previously been vaccinated, who may be in an occupation like a healthcare worker or a nursery school teacher, that they may be exposed to children or to patients who have those infections. We have to take those again on a case-by-case basis to really think about what their priorities are at the time that the patient is sick but needs vaccines. Very helpful. So what are your recommendations on pap smear for women? The issue with pap smears, I think, has also been an evolving one, and this relates also to changes in guidelines in the general population. Right now, the recommendations are that women who are on immunosuppressive therapy should get annual cervical dysplasia screening with a pap smear. And this really is what we would recommend for women with inflammatory bowel disease, specifically who are on immunosuppressive therapies. There have been multiple studies now demonstrating that there is an increased risk of cervical dysplasia in women with IBD who are on immunosuppressive therapies and or steroids and or are smokers. And so this is something that they would fall into that category of women who should get annual screening. Sometimes we get a question, well, if a woman has previously had an abnormal pap smear, they may already have acquired one of the strains of HPV or human papillomavirus, and that's the vaccine that causes cervical cancer and cervical dysplasia. And that is not a reason to withhold 
vaccination because there are actually several strains of HPV that can cause cervical dysplasia and cervical cancer. And so just because a woman may have been exposed to one of them, she may still benefit from uh, vaccination that could give her protection against other strains of HPV. Vaccination against HPV is something that I recommend certainly to women who fall in the age range of ages 9 to 26 for which it's, it's licensed to prevent cervical dysplasia and then pap smears for women who are on immunosuppressive therapy. One question that is somewhat conflicting in the literature is, is there an increased risk of cervical dysplasia in women with IBD who are not on immunosuppressive therapy? And there are studies that have shown that maybe there is a risk or maybe there is less of a risk in those women, but certainly women who are on immunosuppressive therapies should get annual cervical dysplasia screening. If you were just tuning in, you were listening to CCFA Perspectives, Crohn's and Colitis Update on ReachMD at the CCFA annual meeting. I'm Laura Wingate, and I am speaking to Dr. Gil Melmed, Director of Clinical Inflammatory Bowel Disease, Advanced IBD Fellowship Program, and Clinical Research in the Division of Gastroenterology at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center. So can you provide us your perspective on flu shots and health maintenance? Certainly, flu season comprises much of the year, and we know that the best way to protect oneself from the flu is to be vaccinated against the flu. 30,000 people a year in the United States are hospitalized with influenza. And primarily, as people get older, that risk goes up. But we also know that people who have inflammatory bowel disease are at increased risk. And not only that, but people with IBD who are at increased risk of getting the flu are also at higher risk of being hospitalized and getting concurrent pneumonia associated with that influenza. The flu shot, the inactivated flu vaccine, is available broadly and safe for people with IBD who are on immunosuppression or off immunosuppression. It really doesn't matter. The only consideration would be for the flu vaccine that is the live inhaled flu mist, which this year in 2016 is actually not available broadly, but it has in past years and it may be in future years. That's a live inhaled vaccine and that should not be administered to individuals with IBD who are on immunosuppression or to their household contacts. And I think it's important to bring up the household contacts because influenza, like anything else, uh, like many infections, can be transmitted when you're in close proximity and close quarters and is a respiratory acquired infection. And so administration of vaccination to household contacts is really critical. So when we make the recommendations to our patients to get the flu shot, we also remind them to make sure that everybody at home gets their flu shots as well. Good advice. I have one last question for you. Do you recommend dysplasia surveillance of rectal cuff in patients with a pouch? So this question is relevant to a very specific patient population, and those are patients who have had a colectomy, presumably for ulcerative colitis, and have a J-pouch. And there's actually two primary surgical techniques for creating a J-pouch, one of which involves complete removal of the entire rectum, and then a second, probably more commonly performed J-pouch operation that involves using what's called a double staple technique, and that leaves behind one to two centimeters of the native rectum. And we know that people with ulcerative colitis do have an increased risk of colon cancer over time, and so theoretically that risk should apply to the remnant rectum that is left behind when that double staple technique is performed when individuals get a J-pouch. And so this has been studied, but it's a pretty rare occurrence to actually get cancer in that rectal cuff or in the J-pouch itself. One study from Cleveland Clinic found in nearly 1,500 patients that there were less than a dozen patients who actually did have that. So that risk is low. That being said, we know that there are certain risk factors that make us more likely to be concerned about these individuals and screen them appropriately. One of them is having hydrocolectomy for cancer 
or for dysplasia. And certainly those are individuals over time who have a much higher risk of developing dysplasia or cancer in that remnant rectal cuff. But even individuals who didn't have their colectomy for cancer or dysplasia may still have a low but increased risk of developing cancer in that remnant rectum. I do recommend surveillance of that rectal cuff like one would if somebody had their native colon. Really, it's taking a look every one to three years and taking random biopsies of that remnant rectal cuff. Sometimes it's not easy to find that rectal cuff when we put the scope inside. Sometimes it's not easy to date back and understand what operation did the patient actually have. Do they even have a rectal cuff? It's not always so clear unless we actually have the operative report. So taking a look, going inside the pouch, taking a look and taking random biopsies is, is generally what I would advocate, certainly in individuals who have a rectal cuff and certainly in individuals who've had their colectomy for dysplasia or cancer. So many thanks to our guest, Dr. Gil Mehmet, for joining us today. I'm Laura Wingate. To access this episode and others in the series and to download the ReachMD app, please visit ReachMD.com. We encourage you to leave comments and share this program with your colleagues. Thank you for listening. This has been CCFA Perspectives on ReachMD, produced in collaboration with the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America. For access to this and other episodes and to download the ReachMD app, visit ReachMD.com forward slash CCFA.